something? So I'm from London, so I came up this morning, but I'm obviously not originally from London. I'm originally from Texas. Um, have any of you been to Texas before? Oh, look at that. That side of the room. They've been. Oh, yeah. Uh, actually, I was with Johnny, um, and we had really good southern food, I think, wasn't it? Anyway. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I'm doing now, give you a little bit of my backstory, tell you about a couple projects, and then I want you guys to grill me, and we're going to just have a conversation about what pioneering on the ground is looking like in a Western context. So, um, yeah, so currently um, I am the executive director of a charity that all we do is spin out social justice projects and social enterprises. Um, we say our kind of public face is we're designing creative solutions for social change, but we do that through pioneering new ways of doing mission that makes sense for a post-Christian secular context. So it's creative, it's new, it's always changing. We're dealing um, and engaging with people that are very far away from being inside a church context. Some of them definitely post-Christian, um, some that are just seeking, um, but all kind of looking for ways to have meaning. And we, so we're looking at how do we make a micro impact in people's lives, how are people's lives transformed, but how do we make a macro impact and actually transform the world in which we're living. So I'll explain what that looks like practically, but I'm going to tell you how I got into it. So my background is actually in the fashion industry. So I was in the business world in Texas, working with startup fashion designers, um, and just had really the American dream. Um, and I came to this place in 1997 where um, somebody said to me, but are you satisfied? Like the carrot keeps moving from one thing to the next. And God really used that um, in my life to really kind of look and go, actually, am I satisfied? And do I really believe in anything bigger than the dollar? And that led me to sell everything that I owned in 1997. And I moved to this small town where I went to university and took a year trying to figure out if I believed that God exists, it existed, and what that would mean for my life. And that led me to church plant because I realized at that point, even though I was living in the Bible Belt, that I didn't have one friend that was a Christian. So it was kind of all post-Christian people that had kind of said, actually, we're looking for meaning, but we don't think we're finding it in kind of the normal Christian experience in, in America. So ended up church planting. So we planted a church called Soul Cafe in 98, and we had you know, lots of people come to faith. I mean... Lots and lots of people, like 180 people in three years came to faith and were like selling everything they owned and changing the way they were doing life. And that kind of raised, um, so the Baptists got really involved in what we were doing and wanted to support it. But as soon as that happened, I realized we went back to everything that we had left. And so we kind of normalized, our culture just normalized, it looked like every other church and so I stood in the halls one day and said you know have we done anything different or have we just painted the walls another color and that kind of took me on a journey that I never expected to go on so I started saying we're gonna have to experiment we're gonna have to take more risk um, we're gonna have to really go further out than we we have done before and so as I was working in kind of this post-christian small pocket of America which is it's the minority culture in the States. 
I kept hitting all these walls going, but who can we learn from? And I just was looking around and not finding anyone to learn from. And I thought, actually, we're going to have to learn from Europe. Well, I wasn't going to start here with my story, but I hope you all are enjoying this. Um, anyway, so I came on a four-month traveling trip across Europe, um, just really looking, what is God doing in Europe? And what, as Americans, could we learn from what God was doing here? And I was really inspired, and I went back to the States. No sense that I would move here. And then over about six months, just all my friends from all over, you know, people, I had friends in Prague and I had friends in all across the U.S. And they kept calling me going, Shannon, every time we pray for you, we feel like you're supposed to be in London. And I started off really laughing at that, you know, me, no way. <laughs> um, and the long and the short of it was I, I just got to this place that I knew that I knew that I knew I had to come here. And where everything up until that point in my life, I'd had such a clear sense, we're going to start this. Like I'm, I was kind of a classic entrepreneur. I'd have an idea, you can make it happen, you cast the vision, you raise the funds, you build the team, you have a really clear strategy, and you do it. Job done. But when I came to London, I felt like God just said to me, be still and know that I'm God first. Stop. And wait. And pray. And, and embed yourself in the culture first. It was this sense of going underground. So like any idea that I would like plant a church or a missional community went out the window like the first week I was here. <laughs> um, and so that's so what I did. I didn't know anybody. I mean, I'd had a blog and I'd met a few people and I'd been to Greenbelt, but I didn't really, I didn't have any friends here. Um, but I prayer walked the city and I got to know it and I waited and... Um, and after about four months, I had a screaming match with God because I was like, okay, I need something to do now because <laughs> I'm also kind of a chronic recovering uh, workaholic, you know, just, um, I say recovering, my friends would laugh at that, you know, I, I like to have a lot to do. Um, and kind of after my screaming match with God, I ended up meeting an artist that was not a Christian on the playground of an estate during Soul in the City. So I know, most of you know Soul in the City. And what had happened is for four days, um, I'd been given this job of like scraping paint off fences and nobody to talk to. <laughs> and then on the fifth, and Rob, I kind of noticed him all week long, um, but he wasn't talking to anyone and he was kind of just kept to himself and could tell you, I just was like, how did he get here? Because he doesn't look like he's having much fun, but he's painting this playground on this estate. And on the Friday, he came up to me, and we sat over lunch, and he said, so you're the only person here that I don't know that lives in London. What are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I came because I um, sponsored somebody that was there that was 14 that needed a guardian. And he said, oh, okay, well, where do you go to church? And I just stopped because at the time I wasn't. And I usually said something like, you know, we're doing, you know, a group of us are meeting and praying. Or, you know, I tried to explain it, but I felt like God just said, just be straight with him and tell him that you don't. So I was like, I don't. And he, like, visibly was shocked. He's like, oh. And he said, why not? And I said, well, I'm still trying to figure out what that means for me being new to London. And I also believe that church is a, a verb and not a noun and that we need to be the people following after Jesus, and that, as we do that, we'll turn the world upside down with the gospel. He goes, oh, I want to talk to you. 
So anyway, um, I'm going to do this, then we'll start talking. Um, so he said, why don't you paint the playground with me? So for four hours, he told me his entire spiritual journey. He and his girlfriend had dismissed Christianity intellectually. They'd gone traveling. He, they'd gone to India and studied Buddhism. They'd gone to the Middle East. They'd done, like, special Sufi training. Um, I mean, they'd just done it all. And then they went to Australia where he had an exhibition, and she got ill, and she went on a Sufi healing retreat. So I don't know how many of you know, but on a Sufi healing retreat, you pray to meet your healer. So she did that, and she had an encounter with Jesus. And she's like, whoa, I've rejected you. The next day, he got his acceptance to be an artist at the Florence Trust. And, you know, like Damien Hurst was a Florence Trust artist. I mean, you know, it's kind of a big deal in the art world. And so they came back to London. He was given a studio in a church that's been turned into studios, and his studio was underneath the resurrection. And then their flat, you couldn't look out any window without seeing a steeple. So she started doing an alpha course, and he started freaking out. <laughs> um, and that's when we met. And so we just talked all day. And then, you know, the next day he called me, and he said, um, we, I want to show you my studio. Now, I had a lot of friends that call themselves artists, but, you know, then I went to his studio and realized he was a real artist and I don't know much about art. And so, you know, he showed me some of his work, and then we went for coffee at the Tate, and he said, here's the deal, Shannon, we're going to do a project together, and I'm going to challenge all my assumptions about Jesus. And I'm going to do this in a church, um, and it's going to have to be, He's going to do conscious reflex drawing. So, you know, you draw without looking, so you never make eye contact with the paper. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to redraw the Jesus story from the birth of Christ to Pentecost. I'm going to go during a service because you Christians say that Christ lives within you. So if that's true, then the spirit of Christ will be present during a service. And then I'm going to go away, and I'm going to pray and meditate and ask God to reveal anything that's true in this story. And that part I'm going to do in gold leaf. And then we're going to invite lots of people of different faiths to respond to what I'm doing. And we're going to start a conversation. But if Jesus is real, I will meet him on this journey. And I just looked at him and I thought, and, and he said, and you're going to get the other people involved and you're going to organize the exhibition. And I'm thinking, I don't know anything about, you know, art. But okay. And we did that. And that project was called Doxology. And we ended up having so many people involved in that project. And then we actually launched the exhibition in Texas. We did all the drawings here. But economically, we just couldn't figure out how to launch it here. And I didn't have the networks. But we had a gallery in Houston open their arms to us. And so we went. There was a team of Germans that got involved and made the whole thing more interactive. And um, the week before... We left for the States. He, he was pacing up and down his studio, and he said, Okay, Shannon, I'm just convinced you're going to make me, like, say some prayer before you'll let me get on a plane and actually open the exhibition. And, you know, I just looked at him and I thought, Well, I obviously am not going to do that. First of all, it's your artwork. But the other thing is, I can, you know, everything in my past had taught me to make this about relational evangelism. But everything about my walking alongside of Rob made me realize that God is at work in a more dynamic way 
and I can't put them in a box, and I can't make it like that. So I'm just going to have to trust that we're, we're on this journey together, and I don't know where it's going. And it's messy, and I can't always explain it, but it's real, and it's dynamic, and it's about the kingdom. And so we went, and we do this exhibition, and, um, and I can remember when he opened this exhibition, he stood in front of the resurrection, and he said, I hate this painting, but this is the rock that I feel like I'm thrashing into. And every one of us has to decide what we really believe about who Jesus was. Still not a Christian, so wouldn't have called himself a Christian then. But like to a room full of mainly, you know, just people off the street that go into art exhibitions. He was really kind of saying, look, we all have to look at who Jesus was. And at that same exhibition in front of the painting of the woman at the well, there was a woman weeping. And I thought... If I were in church, I'd know what to do. I'd go up beside her. I'd pray. I'd ask if I could pray for her. But in a gallery with a glass of champagne, what do you do? So I just walked up beside her, and she said, you know, still very cheerful. She said, I have to meet this man, this Jesus, because he's healing me at the core, like reaching through this pot and healing me. And I thought, you know, I've never had an experience like that before. So we did doxology. And that was really about art. And for me, it was like, what's the role of art in our culture? What opportunities are in the art world for the gospel? Where can Christians engage intellectually and in a meaningful way instead of in a contrived way? What, what's our place? What's our role? What does history teach us? Because the church was the patron of the arts at one stage. Have we given that up? Do we need to reclaim it? Do, do we need to just sit at the table with artists and let artists teach us something? Um, then after that, we um, did a project, a campaign to address the demand side of human trafficking um, called The Truth Isn't Sexy, which we, again, were just trying to speak to culture in a meaningful way. Um, and that project we did, um, I don't know, have any of you seen it? Because, it, I mean, it kind of was around, it was a long time ago, but... Um, so I'll just do two minutes. So it was a campaign to address the demand side of human trafficking, and we did it in pubs and clubs. It had a highly sexualized image on the front, and you turned it over, and you got a real story. And it basically looked like a prostitute's calling card and had a hotline on the front. And we had 80 calls that were um, to that number that led to um, information being given to the police and um, brothels being shut down. We found that men that saw the campaign, it changed their opinion of paid sexual services. With 6,000 volunteers involved, 80% of whom weren't Christians, but that we're starting to look at how do you do justice stuff together. Um, and we weren't trying to say that we were Christian. We were just trying to be a group of friends that were engaging in a project together. And we did the campaign on 5,000 pounds, which is next to nothing. And um, when we did our parliamentary launch and then we wrapped the campaign and had an evaluation done, the government came to us and said that we would have saved them approximately five million pounds in five years of work because that's what it takes to set a good practice standard. And we did that, five grand. So, and we just created the learning for how do you address demand? How do you change the conversation in the media? But I lost almost all of my support in that process. So I raised my support as a missionary, basically from the States. 
And that made me think we've got to change the way that we do, um, that we look at how we're funding what we're doing. And then social enterprise was starting to be talked about a lot. And so it was one of those aha moments for me about is, like, are there new opportunities in social enterprise, both for living out the Christian faith and for sustainability in terms of mission? And I think there are. And that led us to start a social enterprise, which we're doing now. And then that's also led us to ask a question about how do we really measure? Like, I can tell you the narrative, you know, and I can tell you some good stories. But most often in the mission world, we pull out a few good stories and we tell those, and we tell them over and over. But we don't know how to really measure the impact that we're having and kind of own that. And I think the other thing is we're not very good at telling the failures. So we want to tell you what's worked, but we're not telling you what doesn't work. And I think in pioneering, I think if we're not failing, we're not risking enough. And I think if we, the more that we package up and we make it look neat, like the story that I told about doxology and Rob's journey is neat, but it's messy and it doesn't fit in the box. And I think in pioneering, I think we're going to have to be more open to that. So I don't know. I feel like I've talked a lot. Um, my idea is I was going to tell you um, about a couple of projects and then let you really ask well, how do you measure the impact of that? Or how do you know it worked? Or what was hard about it? Um, what would you change? Kind of those questions. I don't know if you'd find that helpful, but I thought that might be the way to do it. And we could do it, since I've talked a bit about doxology, I could tell you more about another project, or um, you could start by kind of taking it. Okay. So Sweet Notions is the social enterprise that we're doing. So it's, um, have any of you heard of it? No? Yeah, okay. So, sweetnotions.org, you should look it up. And if you Google it on YouTube, you'll find um, a little three-minute animated video. Um, so, basically, it starts, we collect accessories from around the world. So, um, the fashion industry is the second biggest industry in the world. It's the second biggest employer in the UK. Um, so, if you take all the, you know, from retail to manufacturing, if you take all the strands of it. But it's also one of the biggest polluters, and it creates quite a bit of waste. There are 7.5 billion tons of toxic landfill waste a couple years ago. That was a statistic from just a couple years ago in this country alone. It's a lot of waste. So we just thought, well, can we do something with that? So we thought every woman in the world has a few extra pieces of jewelry, and even guys have belts and ties and cufflinks. So we'll collect those. And then we'll repurpose them, So, because we're connected to all these artists and creative types. Maybe they can redesign them. So we had a designer that works to, like, he created a design where you could turn a scarf into a lampshade. And so we'll repurpose them, and then we'll sell them through pop-up shops and boutique events, part education and awareness to talk about the effect of the fashion industry and if we actually bring better practice into it we can have a transformative impact in our culture but also to raise funds to support new projects and then the first project that we're funding out of that is really closely linked they're the design camps and it's where we're teaching women in the largest um, hostel in the country the Marlebone project so it's a 108 bed um, women's shelter so it takes women that are homeless, it also serves rough sleepers, um, mentally ill women, and um, 
just women exiting prostitution or refugees. I mean, they have women from everywhere in every circumstance, and we teach them to repurpose. So we do a craft, well, jewelry making, creativity week. One day a week we do this session. Um, and we are seeing, so we've just finished running it for one year. Um, I don't know. When we started, the hostel said, you'll never get women. You'll never get women to participate. Like, they've never had the level of engagement that we've seen. They said, you'll be really lucky if you get five women. I think that's why I'm really glad I'm an American, um, because I just didn't hear that. I was just like, this is going great. We're going to have, we're going to be full every week. And we had them. Um... And they said, and the same women aren't going to come week to week. But we've really built a community of women. And we've seen 10% of the women that have gone through the design camp, they've gone into employment. So these are women that are like the furthest away from the job market. And the key workers and Job Center Plus are saying they can all put it down to like this craft and creativity session. And our belief was if women create together, they're going to start helping one another heal. They're going to encourage one another in a way that you can't do from a top-down, you know, service-providing model. I just think, I think it's it just works. I think it's, you know, it's what used to happen. And I think the other thing is, I mean, I'm a little bit inspired by what's happening in the craft movement. I'm not a crafty person. But with the middle class... Um, you're seeing a lot of groups form. So you've got all the stitch and bitch groups and knitting circles. and and But it's educated middle class and people that can afford it. But, they, but you're seeing them, the way they start to talk about their lives is how much more empowered they feel. Well, what if we can give that same opportunity to women that don't have access? So that's what we tried to do through the design camps. And then we did this evaluation to prove that if you did something like that, you can de deliver it cheaper. So we deliver the project on 100 pounds a head, whereas most um, services to women that are working to do empowerment and social inclusion, they run, they cost between 500 and 1,000 pounds a head. So again, how do we do it cheaper? How do we do it better? How do we create good practice? And then how do we share the learning? So from Matryoshka House, that's our thing. We think not everyone's geared to pioneer, to pioneer and create the learning, but so let's make it easier for people that are going to come after us and let's share the learning. So 